Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They're the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. In this episode, I will be speaking with distinguished professor and author Donald Shoup on the impact of parking in the development of the contemporary city. But before beginning this conversation, I would like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. Donald Shoup is a distinguished research professor in the Department of Urban Planning at UCLA. His research has focused on land economics, public finance, transportation, and parking. In his 2005 book, The High Cost of Free Parking, Shoup laid out his fundamental rules on parking policies. And in his most recent edited book, Parking in the City, he and 45 other academic and practicing planners examined what happened where cities have adopted these policies. The successful outcomes show that parking reforms may be the easiest, cheapest, and fastest way to improve city life, protect the environment, and promote social justice. Donald Shoup is also a fellow of the American Institute of Certified Planners and an honorary professor at the Beijing Transportation Research Center. He's received the American Planning Association's National Excellence Award and the Association of Collegiate Schools of Planning's Distinguished Educator Award. Donald, it is a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thank you for joining On Cities. Well, thanks for inviting me. I was afraid you'd never ask. <laughs> Uh, Donald, I generally start my conversations by asking my guests where they grew up, because I'm interested in knowing whether those formative years shaped their thinking about the world. So, Donald, where did you grow up and how did that or how might have that influenced your thoughts about cities or the world around you? Well, I was born in Long Beach, California, which is about 35 miles south of where I live now. Uh, it sounds like a very uh, provincial life I've had, but uh, my father was in the Navy, which is why we were living at Long Beach, because his ship was uh, uh, based there. Uh, but when I was two, we moved to uh, uh, Hawaii, because his ship was uh, uh, based from then on in Pearl Harbor. Uh, so my earliest uh, memory in life was the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, so ever since then, my life has been comparatively calm. Uh, <laughs> nothing seems as bad as you could imagine the attack on Pearl Harbor to have been. Fortunately, my father's ship was out at sea during the attack uh, with a Hollywood movie company on board making a movie. Uh, so that saved his life. Uh, but uh, uh, we kept moving around, so I didn't grow up in any one place. We lived in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and on Guam, and uh, but more time than any place else in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, 
So that's where I grew up. Yeah, well, that peripatetic lifestyle brought you back to California. So it's interesting that you kind of made that full circle. Um, so, I mean, I when I speak to individuals, I believe that no one achieves success in life without the influence of important teachers or mentors. Donald, who would you say have been your greatest mentors and what lessons did you learn from them? Well, I, I'm sure there are many of them. And I think that uh, when you're young, you, at least when I was young, I didn't realize how there were uh, other people helping me along and giving me credit for things <laughs> that, that should be shared with them. And there were a number of professors like that. But I think the, the single most influential person in my education was Ruth Mack, uh, not as famous as uh, some of the other uh, professors that I've had, but Ruth Mack uh, was an economist, uh, and I got a job uh, while I was doing my dissertation to work on a, uh, a research project at the Institute of Public Administration in New York City, where Ruth Mack was based. She was an astonishing person, uh, but it was in her time there was great discrimination against women uh, among the economics profession. She was everybody's favorite friend, but she never had a full-time academic post uh, at Columbia or where, where she, she she lived in an apartment building owned by Columbia. But as she worked at the Institute of Public Administration, she wrote a wonderful book while I was working with her called Planning on Uncertainty. How, how because there is so much uncertainty in life, we have to, uh, we can't plan without taking that into account. So she uh, guided me along and we uh, uh, co-authored an article, uh, a, a manuscript on uh, uh, advanced land acquisition by local governments, the idea that uh, cities ought to buy land in advance of need uh, if they're going to build schools or or office buildings or whatever they're going to do. So I I under her influence, I got very interested in the urban land market, and I've stayed there uh, for the rest of my career. So you don't get a chance to, to thank your, your professors uh, often during the lifetime, uh, but I, it's always nice to give tribute to her um, afterwards. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that. I mean, um, I, I think that uh, there are many people that play a role in our in our making, and so I agree um, to pay tribute and and have some gratitude. Uh, I think is important. So, um, well, let's let's turn to your work, your lifelong work, really, because you're considered by many the guru of parking and its impacts on the contemporary city. Your book. The High Cost of Free Parking was written nearly 20 years ago and is still considered the seminal work on the subject. Um, Donald, many people would say that parking is maybe among the least sexiest of topics. And so what brought you to the topic of parking in the first place? Well, I think uh, uh, most most drivers think that parking is like sex, that uh if you have to pay for it, it's just not right. Uh, and I thought of that, <laughs> it would have been in the 1960s, yes, when I worked with Ruth Mack. And the, uh, 
the single biggest land use in cities is parking. There's more space devoted to parking than there is to housing or uh, commerce or industry or anything else. And to an economist, it's very peculiar that most people never pay for parking on trips. And on most of the trips that you take, you don't pay for parking. So how could it be that some of the most valuable land on earth is devoted to parking, to free parking, if you bring a car? It'll be free for if you bring a car, but for every other use of land, you have to pay a very high price. Now, how could this happen, and why did it happen, and what are the effects? So I think that uh, the uh, planner's mistakes uh, about planning for parking have, have uh, put it put cities in jeopardy that I think that the that the I, I got yes I think that I if I have a method it is to look at uh, situations where the cost of providing something is very much lower than the price that you pay for it if, 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 if parking is very expensive to provide and yet the users pay for it and expect to have plenty of it and feel aggrieved if they can't get it, then there's going to be a problem. And uh, I think that if if you most drivers expect that uh, parking should be available when you get to where you're going, you have to. If you're a driver, you have to have parking at your destination. It's something you really do need. It should be available. It should be convenient. You shouldn't have to walk far, uh, and it should be um, uh, uh, free. Now, how how many things, other things, do we ever expect that of? If we thought that was true of clothing or housing or anything else, it wouldn't work. But because we expect it to be available and convenient and free, we have planned the world uh, around that expectation. And uh, the, 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 there are not, not that many studies of how many people pay for parking, but the most uh, authoritative one was that on on automobile trips, uh, drivers park free ninety seven percent of the time. Wow, I, I didn't realize all, it was so high. Uh, mainly because if it's not free, you don't want to drive, <laughs> or you will uh, you you you'll if at your destination your park is not validated, for example, uh, that you will. But it's available for a price, and curb parking is free. You'll drive around until you find a curb space. And this, this, this cruising for parking. Um, Actually, Donald, as you as you begin to to elaborate on this, um, maybe I could step back a second and and state that your book really established what uh, is regarded as, or at least what you point out to be three fundamental rules of parking. And I think you're starting to address the first one, correct? Which is that, um, that there is a high cost for free parking. So charge the right price for curb parking. Um, And then the second is spend the revenues, right? On uh, to pay for added public services. And then finally, maybe remove off street parking requirements, um, would you say that that's correct? And if so, is could you elaborate a little bit on those three fundamental rules? 
Yes, I think I started out with uh, finding out how, how damaging minimum parking requirements are, that cities won't let you open a restaurant unless you have uh, you know, twice as much space for parking as there is for the restaurant or, uh, or for a nail salon or anything. There are parking requirements. But uh, why do we have them? Uh, uh, well, it's because people, people want to park free. And how to and if the curb parking is free uh, and somebody builds a restaurant without any off-street parking, it'll overcrowd the curb. So that is the, where I started. I thought then that let me say, well, what should we do with curb parking? And I think that uh, getting back to prices, cities should charge the lowest price that that they can and still have one or two open spaces on every block. Because that's what drivers want to see, is wherever they go, they'll see an open space waiting for them. Uh, sort of like in a, a Hollywood movie about the good life in New York. Whenever you pulled up in a car to your destination, there's a space available. You know, that happens in a movie, but not often in New York City. Because all the cars are filled with, uh, I mean, all the parking spaces are filled uh, with cars that are parked free. Uh, 97% of all curb parking spaces in New York City are free. Only 3% are metered. So how do you go from a situation like that to uh, getting a situation where we can charge the right price, the lowest price you can charge, and still have one or two open spaces? The spaces will be uh, – the prices will be – Higher where the demand is higher, they'll be low where demand is low, it'll often be free, uh, especially in the suburbs. And it would be different prices at different times of day. But it would be uh, always the, the right price leads to the right uh, uh, occupancy so that uh, the spaces will be, most spaces will be occupied, uh, uh, but a few spaces will be vacant. Now, what could you think of as a better price to charge for curb parking as an economist? But then how parking is political, not just economic. What politics will lead people to say, we want this? And for that, I suggested or proposed that cities should dedicate all of the meter revenue to pay for uh, better public services on the metered blocks. Say, if you have meters on your block, you'll get uh, your sidewalks uh, repaired if they're broken. They'll clean them every night. They'll uh, trim street trees. They will have historic street lighting. Some cities give um, uh, free bus passes to everybody who lives on the block. Say, if you if your block has a uh, residential block has a park charger for parking, they're not meters anymore. They will be paying by cell phone. Uh, 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 that you get free transit passes for everybody on the block. If you don't have meters, you don't get anything. Some cities give free Wi-Fi to to everybody on a block that has parking meters. And mm -hmm. so, if you have parking meters or, or have priced parking, properly priced parking, uh, then you get free Wi-Fi. If you have free curb parking, you don't get it. Uh, and there are lots of other uh, public services, but you have to ask people, what is your highest priority? And then you say, well, we don't have the money for that, but what some cities do is they charge for curb parking. 
and use that to pay for what you want. And many people who have off-street parking of their own or who don't have a car, they'll say, well, I'll take that. Yes. And it, it would be like it, like a, a permit parking in a residential area is that it's opt-in. The neighborhood has this, the block has to say, I want to have this. Um, it will be a, a majority rule that if a majority of the residents say, oh, we want this, and it, it will be uh, 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 you know democratic. So I think that when the cities offer this, people understand, well, this is some of the most valuable land on earth is now being given free uh, to people we don't know. And if we if we charge for it, it'll be like we own a parking lot. We'll, we'll be thinking that that we own this land, but it isn't for individual use. It's for collective use, for something that everybody enjoys on the block, such as uh, a more beautiful block. Uh, so I think that if you charge the right price for curb parking and spend the revenue uh, to pay for added public services, then there'll always be some vacant spaces on every block, and then you could remove all street parking requirements because yeah. you won't be afraid that if we don't have parking requirements, the crowd will be the the curb will be so crowded with cars, and I won't be able to find a parking space. Uh, so I think that the, the the rationale for parking prices will have the rug pulled out from under it. That you can't say that it's going to cause congestion at the curb. You can't say that there'll be no place to park. It'll be because parking will become like gasoline. When you go to a gas station, you don't expect to get it free. Just imagine how awful it would be if gasoline were free and everybody had to line up waiting for it. Actually, let me let me um, ask you. What about? Which, I mean, I think that makes a great deal of sense. And um, again, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show because, as a practicing architect, I come across these challenges all the time. And you know, form oftentimes follows parking. And you know, I think we have to. It's kind of this is long in coming. So, um, but I'm curious, Donald. What about cities that have very limited, let's say, public transit options? I'm thinking about my own here in Miami. Um, would these be places um, where parking requirements would be necessary in your mind? No. Uh, I think one of the reasons you don't have uh, public transit is because you could park free everywhere. You could park free at home see, because you can't build any housing unless you provide the parking first. Once you provide the, house, the, the, the parking, then the city will let you build something. But they won't let you build housing or apartments or anything else without plenty of off-street parking. So it's it's the the city planning's uh, role in it is to say has been to say that we know how much parking every place requires uh, that we should require in every place. Uh, and I think that uh, if we move to this uh, world that I'm talking about, there'll be more transit riders. And they'll, they'll be, because transit uh, uh, economizes on parking spaces. The, the, where, every, where all the parking is free, 
public transit doesn't have a chance. There's no reason to have it. But I think if we begin charging for curb parking, then more people will begin to consider. And we give free transit passes <laughs> to everybody that that will have pay for the uh, for for expanding transit. I think in many cases it isn't that we lack transit; we lack transit riders. That oh, the average occupancy of a bus in the United States is about a quarter of 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 the number of seats. Hmm. Yeah. Because why 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 take the bus if you could park free at the origin and the destination of every trip? Yeah, I, I think. Well, actually, if we can linger a little bit longer on the question of uh, public transit, um, you serve as an advisor to the World Bank, and you've worked on ways to try to assist cities in financing public infrastructure, especially in low-income neighborhoods. So, Donald, what what can you share? from this experience? How can cities accomplish this? Well, when I worked for the World Bank, it was before I uh, had developed all my ideas on parking. And I, 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 I proposed another policy, which has worked, but it, it never became as popular as the parking solution. And that is to use more what is called uh, special assessments uh, that for, for sewers or... Uh, underground wiring or things like that. The, the city uh, doesn't give it to everybody free. They uh, require the landowners to pay for it. But many landowners don't have the cash to pay for it. So what my proposal was is you, you charge the landowners but defer uh, their payment until they sell the property. And when they sell the property, they get all the value increase uh, caused by uh, underground wire, telephone wires and um, and uh, uh, good sidewalks and things like that. So that uh, and this has been used, uh, especially in Latin America. They use a lot of special assessments because there's nobody else to pay for uh, land improvements. Why should the city? Why should the the nation or the city pay for public services that benefit individual landowners? without charging the landowners. So uh, that's what what I proposed when I was at the World Bank, and it's been picked up. But now I realize a simpler way to do it is to charge for the, the land that the government already owns. The government owns the curb spaces. Why should you be taxing uh, 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 other people uh, for for uh, any public improvements when you could use the, the, the rent from the, from the land that the government owns. That I think the government has been a very uh, poor steward for the land that it owns. And I, I agree with you that, 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 that uh, among architects, that uh, form doesn't uh, follow function or even finance. It follows parking. But the parking requirements of disfigure buildings. The podium buildings are one of the ugliest things you can think of. Five stories of parking, and then the building begins. Yes. That's happened in a lot of places. Or the building is surrounded by asphalt. Uh, so I think that we we shouldn't any longer wonder why the cities look the way they do. Where we've been so much better at, at, at housing cars than at housing people. We have too many parking spaces and not enough bedrooms. Uh, I think that uh, 
Yes, and ironically, uh, our planning uh, has uh, forced many people to live in their cars. You see, you see, you see people. Well, certainly among university students, every university has students living in their cars, um, and it happens with 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 homeless people that uh, you're not in a tent on the sidewalk, but you're living in a car. In, in L.A., about a quarter of all homeless people live in their vehicles, mm. uh, and but the the vehicles have a place to park, but the people don't have a place to sleep, uh, a safe place to sleep. Interesting. Um, Donald, we're coming to the midpoint of uh, of our conversation. So we're going to take a quick break. But when we return, I would like to take up uh, the topic of your most recent book, which is Parking in the City, and uh, and how it explores the topic of housing affordability and economic development and how they're intimately connected to the questions of parking regulation. So we're going to take a quick break, but do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Donald Shoup. Um, just before the break, we were 
talking about his fundamental rules for parking and the way it shapes the contemporary city. And and now I'd like to re-engage with you, Donald, about your most recent book, Parking in the City, which explores the topic of housing, affordability, and economic development. Donald, how does parking directly impact housing? Well, in two ways, it increases the cost of building housing because the 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 the, the housing has to include the parking, and, and builders don't usually try to say, "Well, how do you divide the cost between housing and parking?" It's like saying, "How do you separate the cost of the roof out of the building or the or the walls?" It seems like something that is is it's like something you have to have. It is something you have to have. Parking is something you have to have because the city requires it. So it increases the cost of building housing. And nobody knows, planners certainly don't know, how much a parking space costs. I'm sure you don't know how much a parking space costs uh, or probably never even thought about it. Uh, but they can be very expensive. And the most recent garage built at UCLA, the cost was $84,000 a space. Uh, and so, who pays for that? <laughs> well, it goes into the cost of the of the apartment that you buy. The the the, the parking is thrown in, uh, so that increases the cost. And because it increases the cost, it reduces the supply, and it makes it very difficult to build the sort of, uh, of small apartment buildings that you were talking about because it's very hard to get the parking and, and the housing on the same piece of land. Uh, but if you got rid of parking requirements, and what's happened in, in, in Los Angeles, that a lot of the uh, small parking lots that were attached to some other use now are available for housing uh, without parking or with very little parking. Uh, so some very large free parking lots are converted into smaller paid parking lots, uh, and you could use the land for housing. So I, I think that, that, that will, be, will, will be happening uh, everywhere. It is certainly happening in Miami, yeah, I can yeah, tell well, you, because the, the, yeah. in, in Miami right now, and actually we, we recently, we, we had a parking policy just up until recent that allowed for buildings underneath 10,000 square foot habitable space to not include parking if they were within a certain distance from transit corridors. And then it was repealed and now it's been brought back. Um, but I couldn't underscore more what you just said. I mean, if we don't, um, if we don't innovate our parking requirements, we're going to, at least in the case of Miami, you're going to be left with having to conglomerate large parcels of land to do very large-scale buildings um, so that the developer model will work because of the vast amount of parking required for any one of these. So if we want to build and really address the housing needs, which are facing many American cities today, then we really do have to rethink these um, these policies so that we can offer a housing stock that can be developed on smaller infill parcels, because quite frankly, not everybody needs a car. Um, that's a kind of outdated, <laughs> an outdated requirement. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. Well, yes, I think that uh, Florida is a good example of some things that have gone wrong, especially the collapse of that uh, condominium just a bit north of Miami a couple of years ago because of the garage. 
It was what was happening in the garage that the building collapsed and, and killed many people. And, 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 uh, and well, I, I think to be fair, I think there was a lot of uh, there was a long period of neglect, and it was really a kind of structural. There was a inherent structural problems in the buildings that hadn't been addressed. Um, of course, exactly. The, so, I agree with I, I agree with that because people never even went into the garage. It was valet park. That 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 you couldn't build a a smaller apartment building on that site. You have to with a with a big building you could have underground parking, but with a you know, with a on a small lot the kind that had been exempted in in in, in uh, Miami, you can build uh, apartments with without without parking. And I I would say that. Not to, to say that California does much right, but we have the state has now prohibited all cities from requiring any parking within a half mile of a major transit stop. It's no longer a municipal decision. Uh, that it's it, when you when you at the local level, uh, the politics governs parking requirements. At the state level, you have more concerns about uh, the shortage of housing. Uh, traffic congestion, air pollution, uh, and now global warming. Uh, that if you include those things, it doesn't make sense for a city to require a lot of off-street parking. Uh, yeah. It isn't that the, the state is taking over or seizing the, uh, the uh, decisions on parking. It's prohibiting cities from taking over the uh, the developers' decisions on parking, the, the cities have have taken away developers' right to decide what is the right amount of parking, and now the state is saying you can't do that. Uh, so I think it's it's really shifting the decisions down, not up to the state level, but down to the local level. Mm. Uh, th th that doesn't mean that they're, they're they're not good ideas at the local level. There's one that I really like in, in Miami Beach. That how do you, you know, they they have a, a parking shortage if any place does, but how do you get people to the residents to vote for uh, expensive curb parking? Well, Miami Beach gives a discount to residents. It's done by we now pay by license plate in many places, uh, but and in. Miami Beach, that if your license plate is registered at Miami Beach, you pay a dollar an hour. If you're a visitor, you pay four dollars an hour. So it's it's like yes, it's like Monty Python's idea that you should tax foreigners living abroad. Yeah. That, uh, that the the residents don't pay much. Uh, but the visitors do. And then the residents understand, well, well. Parking meters are a good idea. We should do that. Uh, on a, uh, when I made a visit to Florida, a speaking tour once, we stopped at Delray Beach, which I, I thought the beach itself was absolutely wonderful. And I gave a talk in a, a historic school building, uh, a beautiful auditorium. There were about 125 people. It was just packed. And uh, I gave my talk and uh, got a good response. And then the mayor asked me to speak to the, a few local leaders the next day. And, the, the, and we went to the city hall. And the mayor said, well, can you summarize what you were saying yesterday? And I thought, well, that, haven't they all been there? But anyway, I made my my uh, uh, presentation. And 
and the uh, uh, I, it's a long table. I was at the end with the mayor, and, uh, and me at the end, and the guy to my right had been sort of chafing. And then as soon as I stopped talking, he started waving a sheaf of paper, saying, I have here uh, signatures of 125 merchants who are totally opposed to everything you said. And I was kind of surprised, so I began arguing with him. You know, the mayors can't argue with citizens like that, but I'm a you know, loose cannon from California, and I had a very long, dragged-out fight with this guy, and nobody else said anything. Uh, and then finally, one of the, uh, the it turned out to be the head of the Chamber of Commerce is Sam. Well, what do you object to? Do you don't think that your customers will be willing to pay for parking? I didn't know who he was. He owned a thrift shop that was, you know, had he probably owned the building, and it was probably didn't. It wasn't very successful, but there were restaurants who were making, uh, who would hire many people and provide a lot of sales tax and, and be a, a great uh, uh, source of, of, of uh, tourists. And finally, everybody in the room came around and said, and said they all agreed with me, but they couldn't say it. It just, uh, unless there was this guy from the outside who, you know, I've, I've had a lot, argued with people for a long time about parking, and he, he eventually subsided. And now uh, uh, they had no parking meters at Delbury Beach, and now they do. Hmm. Well, actually, let's talk a little bit about um, some kind of best practices or good examples, because in researching for this conversation, I came across your descriptions of old Pasadena and how the city has transformed itself due to changing attitudes about parking. Um, so can you share this success story with us? Well, I think it's maybe the greatest success story for parking benefit districts. It was the uh, uh, Pasadena was a, a great uh, winter uh Residence for many rich people from the Midwest. It was a very upscale area. They had a beautiful shopping center on Colorado uh, Boulevard. But then, uh, the uh, when the Depression came along, uh, things began to decay. And then World War II came along. Uh, and then after World War II, everybody was driving everywhere. And old Pasadena had been built before there were many cars. They were wonderful buildings in terrible condition. And that helps to describe parts of Florida. Uh, uh, the, the historic buildings were terrific, uh, but they didn't have any parking. Uh, so the city wanted to put in parking meters and the merchants so said no way that all the buildings were were empty above the ground floor and many of the ground floor buildings, uh, storefronts were empty. The merchants parked on the street and their employees parked on the street and moved their cars every two hours and then said the city ought to build parking for them. Uh, so finally, the mayor, uh, Rick Cole, uh, went into a meeting and he said, well, if we put in the parking meters, we'll spend all the revenue to pay for added public improvements in Old Pasadena. Uh, and the person said, that's different. Why didn't you tell us that? Let's run the meters till midnight. Let's run them on Sunday. And it, they they agreed immediately to the idea that we ought to charge for curb parking, and they sold. Uh, you could you could borrow against parking meter revenue, so they sold 
parking meter revenue bonds, and they replaced all of the sidewalks and all of the street furniture with the highest quality you could possibly get. They cleaned up all the alleys, which were full of dead animals and mattresses, and turned them into beautiful walkways. And the sales tax revenue in the next five years tripled. So the sales tax revenue is a measure of business activity. Uh, so you can't say that putting parking meters in will will harm business if you spend the money uh, to make it uh, a desirable uh, uh, public sphere. And then the the the, the property owners came through with it. Historic preservation is very expensive, uh, but. Uh, and before the, the all the public improvements were made, it didn't pay. The, 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 they wouldn't the rent wouldn't cover it. But suddenly, when the all the public the city had done everything it could, then the property owners came through with the most wonderful historic preservations you can imagine. And uh, there were uh, empty warehouses became department stores. And now there are over thirty thousand people uh, come to visit just to walk around on a weekend because there's not much else like that. So I think that's the case where a parking benefit district. It was the first one, uh, uh, led to a, a great commercial success. And I think that, that uh, it's spreading around this country because uh, as, soon as, as soon as one part of Pasadena got that, other parts of Pasadena said, can we have parking meters? And then yeah. other cities said, well, yes, th- this is a way to pay for it, uh, to pay yeah. for all the public services we would like to give. Uh, but we don't have the money for. So I think old Pasadena is something that other cities should copy. And I think it would work very well in in most uh, uh, Florida cities. And I guess I I don't want to to complain about Florida because I enjoyed my time so much there, but I did get a lot of opposition, like what you happened in, 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 in Miami where they reimposed minimum parking requirements. And I think, do you think that in Florida you would like to have the rest of the world adopt your planning policies of parking requirements or would you rather have the rest of the world adopt my parking policies? If you think that global warming is going to harm any part of the world, it will be Florida. Yeah. Well, if, I'm, Florida, if Florida wants to require lots of off-street parking and have free parking requirements, why should the rest of us worry about Florida going underwater? Well, because I'm there, Donald, at the very least. No, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm just, uh, no, I, I mean, I think I think you point to, um, I mean, I, I love speaking about challenging problems, uh, but more importantly, I, I love to give examples where those, uh, let's say, initially controversial ideas that you put forth about parking um, have actually been tested and have proven to work. Because then I think you can show evidence. And I think once you can show evidence, I think ultimately people oppose things um, to go back to your story of the thrift shop owner because of fear, right? And, and I think individuals are are, I think as a race, you know, human beings are opposed to change oftentimes. Yes. So I, I think I think it's our nature. Um, but uh, but I think what is uh, powerful about the writing of your book is, you know, 20 years out, it shows that when these policies are implemented, they can transform urban environments for uh, the better. Um, and I think that's what I would like the listeners to take away with them. But the world of writership is dramatically changing. 
Um, because now we have, you know, uh, companies like Uber and Lyft that, uh, and other rideshare services that obviously are likely to affect, um, you know, parking choices. So, Donald, let's uh, take up the question of Uber and Lyft and all of these rideshare services. What are your thoughts about them? Yes, I, I think that uh, if we start charging for market prices for curb parking, uh, that Uber and Lyft will get more customers and electric bikes will be uh, a more desirable way to travel. And also the shared vehicles uh, that were people pay a monthly fee to have access to a, a car when they want it, that, that the, uh, the car share companies will be able to rent curb parking spaces so everybody on the block will know there's a car waiting for me uh, for the time that I want to use it. Uh, so people will become more uh, uh, economizing on the use of car. It'll be available for them because we all want to have cars sometime, but that doesn't mean we have to own the car. Interesting. Um, would you feel the same way about the question of parking and autonomous vehicles? Uh, um, I mean, I think the autonomous vehicle is a little bit different than the rider share. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I think they're too far in the future to to pay much attention to, but I think cars will learn how to park themselves long before they learn how to drive themselves. And now uh, some cars have in, in their in vehicle, uh, in the dashboard, uh, they have guidance systems as to where you should park. That They know what the par- price of park because their car is connected. They know exactly what the price of parking is everywhere. They can estimate the availability of parking, and they can give you turn by turn instructions on how to park if you if you have time and you're willing to walk they'll direct you to a, a, a cheaper space maybe five blocks from where you're going if you're in a hurry they'll tell you where you could park right next to where you want to, to, to park I think this is already happening it just it'll take a while for for most cars to have that yeah, some have argued, though. Um, I have a colleague um, out West, Annalisa Mayboon, who's written uh, about this, and she argues that autonomous vehicles are likely to actually increase the number of cars on the road rather than decrease them because now, um, like the elderly or eat children, or you can even send your pet on an, in an autonomous vehicle. Um, so, so that's why I was curious to ask. I mean, some people speak about the autonomous vehicle as being the optimal solution, but um, she makes uh, an argument that it will likely increase the number of cars on the road that might augment some of the challenges that we've been discussing here today. Um, but uh, Donald, we're, we're coming towards the end of the interview now, and I always like to ask my guest um, this final question, which is, what is your favorite city and why? So, uh, Donald? Um, well, I think I would choose what most other places would use at Venice. And one reason for that is that there are no cars and no parking. <laughs> everybody walks everywhere, long distances, and they take the water buses if they want to take public transport. Everybody falls in love with that. And it's just the opposite of a car-dominated area. Getting closer to home, I think Seaside, Florida is one of the places I enjoyed visiting the most. And it, too, uh, was uh, planned uh, not to give uh, priority to cars. 
pedestrians or the 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 uh, is what what the city is made for. Everybody walks everywhere. Uh, so I think that Seaside, Florida, uh, has already had a, a, a big effect on on architecture. It takes a while, uh, but I hope that that uh, the, the new urbanist communities like Seaside will will be become everywhere. Well. Um, thank you so much, Donald, for taking the time uh, to join me today and to talk about your land- long-standing views on parking and parking regulations and how they shape the world around us. Um, next week, I will be joined by Pat Bosch, design director of the international uh, firm of Perkins and Will. She would speak. She will speak about her experiences leading uh, the firm based here in Miami um, and the numerous projects that she. She has been designing with the firm around the world. So do not miss the conversation. Thank you once again, Donald. I appreciate your time and your thoughts. Well, thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week. 